You're listening to the Substandard Model. You ready? Yeah, plants suck, Sam. Plants suck. Hey, hey. They they oh, do not. God. They suck carbon yeah. dioxide out of the atmosphere is what they suck. And you should be grateful yeah. for that. But yeah, we should give plants a chance. Plant blindness is a big phenomenon. People aren't nice enough to plants. We take them for granted. And I'm about to demonstrate why. So maize, corn, you know, this is a kind of bad start. It's a bad start for why plants are cool. (laughs) Hey, maize is one of the most incredible plants out there. Okay. So here come a few maize facts, Henry. Maize was domesticated by humans from a plant called Tiacente, which essentially, if you, if you saw Tiacente right now in the wild, you would be, you wouldn't give it a second thought. It looks exactly like regular grass. Okay, like a literal grass you'd find in your garden. But because it's been domesticated for so long, we've managed to grow its grass seeds to be so big that the actual grass heads have turned into what is essentially corn, corn on the cob. They're domesticated versions of grass heads. And the amount of change we've seen from the original is so insanely different. They're like, I don't know, it's one of the, I think it's one of the weirdest examples of selective breeding out there. And one of the reasons that maize is so good at selective breeding is because something called transposons, transposonic events. So, there's someone called Barbara McClintock, who I think I might have mentioned. She was a lady who spent a large part of her career studying, uh, studying genetics in maize. And she had a little, little lab out in the, out in the prairie. And she would, you know, go wake up every morning and study her plants. And she was very, very dedicated. And she was committed to this theory that there were parts of genes in maize, which could jump around in the genome, right? So they could be picked up by enzymes and plopped somewhere else. And she was adamant this was true. And she was ridiculed by the scientific community. You know, this can't happen. What are you talking about? And eventually she was proven right and everyone looked stupid. And it's a fun story. It's a good story of... But where, where in the hell did she, she get that idea from? It was, well, so maize... You can't is, just wake up and you're like, like, I think that maize plant has got travelling genes. Well, there was some... It just, it just <laughs> does. And I'm going to spend 30 years proving that. <laughs> <laughs> there was some evidence for it. So, for example, I mean, a lot of it is in the phenotype. So what we see is when plants, and maize in particular, but generally plants, all plants exhibit this kind of defense, right? When they're like, let's say, in a really stressful environment, often what they'll do is they'll really, really increase the expression of their transposases. So what will happen is it's almost like you're shuffling the deck of your own genes. You know, plants are under stress. They can't run away. I remember this. You told me about this. Yeah, I told you about this. I'm, I'm bringing this up again. This isn't the fact, by the way, but this is a half fact. So, you know, a plant can't run away where an animal can. So if a plant's under stress from, like, you know, pesticides or or drought or whatever, the plant will shuffle its genes and eventually, hopefully, create some magical new combination of genes which allow it to get out of the situation. Most of the time... This doesn't sound like it's got a high success rate. I mean, if you just reshuffled your genes... It doesn't. It does not have a high success rate at all. Most of the time, <laughs> it fucks you Chance of death up. immediately. Oh, my God, the chance of death <laughs> is so high. Transposases are really deleterious. And if you were to ask some asshole like Richard Dawkins, he would say that transposases. Okay, you know what? You don't like Richard Dawkins. I don't like Richard Dawkins. I'm going to say that out right now. I found him. I find him funny. <laughs> I don't like his I have, books. I have no opinion further than that. I, I think he he gets very far by just calling certain processes other things, and it seems deep and cool, but it's not actually that deep. And then he's know. like, oh, "Religion's dumb." Yeah, he's good at making himself seem like he's discovered something when he hasn't. 
Um, I don't like him that much. But generally, what a trans- transposers has evolved because if you're able to copy a gene and stick it somewhere else, there's a better chance it's going to get passed down, right? So transposers are like selfish little elements inside your genome who who are sort of trying to, at the expense of the host organism, copy themselves so they get passed down to the offspring. And then those offspring who had more transposers get passed down more and more. Even though the, the animal itself is being harmed by them, they can't help but pass them down. You know, it's kind of cool. That's that's right. the that's the idea. But evidence against that, which Barbara McClintock pointed out, is that plants use it to try and, you know, strike lucky and get a really cool mutation or a new piece of variation that allows them to get out of a hard situation. And she discovered this in maize. Maize has loads of transposers. Oh my god, so many. So many. But And that's why maize was a perfect organism to pick if she was going to study them. Um, and one of the reasons that they were able to be domesticated so quickly and so effectively is because they have such high degrees of transposers. And this has also accounted for not only their ability to be domesticated, but the variation they show. So maize shows so much variation. You know, you got all sorts of var- variants of maize. You got North American, South American, Central American, all these different plants that fundamentally look nothing like each other, but are all descended from the same ver- general grass type. And interestingly, maize can't reproduce on its own. It requires humans to help it reproduce. That's how far gone it is from its previous incarnation. You know, it, it's, it really is reliant on it being farmed. That's how much we fucked it. And I'm going to focus on one particular kind of maze, Henry, is what I'm going to do. Um, and it's called Mexican maze. And this is my favorite kind of maze. Not, not simply for. Can we call it corn? Are we allowed to call it corn? You know what? No, I think corn, corn is the name of the thing you get from maze. Okay. So corn, <laughs> hear me out. Corn is the corn on the cob. Corn is the yellow tube with the stuff on it. Maize is the plant. That's okay. what I'm going. That's what I'm going okay. with. That's what I'm going with. If there's yeah. anything you take from this podcast. <laughs> okay. Um but yeah, let's call it maize. It's nicer. Maize is better than corn. And there's one kind of maize which has a very, very special root system, which is unlike any other any other root system I've ever seen. So when you when you think of roots, what do you think of, Henry? What what describe what what do you imagine roots to be like? Beetroots, ginger. Uh, what what are those like bean beans? What are the white what are the white beans that you get in like wok fried vegetables? Bean sprouts, white, bean sprouts, white bean sprouts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Bean sprouts. Roots. I mean, you say that, but you know, all plants have roots. You know, let's not be silly about this. All plants have yeah. roots. Roots are roots are generally like you know white and stringy, and they're in the ground. And they're what do they do? They collect they collect water, don't they? They collect nitrogen, all sorts of stuff like that. Or do they? I mean, they do, don't they? Well, the Mexican maize lives in some very nitrogen-depleted soil. It lives in the Osaka region, and I say so Osaka... With... Does Mexican maize walk? Is that is that what's happening? No, 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 it's not walking maize. Some maize does walk in a weird... Well, cactuses walk. Yes, that's what I was thinking. Um, but I'm not going to talk about that. Like, that can be a future fact, but this isn't what I'm talking about. This is even cooler. So the soil itself is very, very nitrogen-depleted, is what I'm getting at, in this particular region where the maize is grown. So it grows roots in the ground, but those roots aren't particularly useful for getting nitrogen. They can't get enough nitrogen to fuel themselves. And nitrogen is super underrated. Like, I honestly think nitrogen is one of the most important elements for life. You know, the reason that you evolve things like carnivorous plants and evolve these weird strategies around plants is because they need new ways to get nitrogen. And often that's because the soil can't give them enough. 
And this is another cool way around that. So what would you do, Henry, if you were a, a corn plant? Fuck, maize plant. And there wasn't enough nitrogen in the soil. What would you do? How would you get around that? There was not enough nitrogen in soil. Not I would nitrogen. get nitrogen from the air. Right. Bingo. Is that the same nitrogen? Feels like soil and nitrogen is going to be like bits of gas between no, as well. No, so, like. so, so this is, I mean, if all they care about is the element, right? I mean, usually yeah, yeah. nitrogen fixing bacteria, so rhizobium, stuff like that, those form an association with the roots of things like legumes. I mean, you know about this, right? Nitrogen fixing bacteria yeah. in the roots of some plants allow nitrogen from the air to be fixed into nitrates and nitrites, which can then be picked up in solution by other roots. And interestingly, the rhizobium is like, it's an infection. The roots are infected with bacteria, but it's a good infection. You know, it allows, it allows the plant to live. But even, yeah. even with the rhizobium and stuff, like the, these maize aren't, they're just not getting enough. They need some other way to get nitrogen and they get it from the air, but you can't just get it from the air. You know, there's not enough concentration. You can't just get nitrogen straight up from the air. It doesn't work like that. So these plants have what is called aerial roots. So they, a, a Mexican maize plant has like a big sort of red, imagine like a big red hand and they have all these weird long fingers, weird thick, look like hot dog sausages coming out of the stems of the plant in a sort of crown shape. And they're, they, I was, they were described to me by a friend as big wet dicks. And that's, I think, a good way of describing them. They're just sort of coming out of this plant. And interestingly, these, these big area roots are covered, absolutely covered in a sort of like a sort of clear transparent gel yeah please stop adding to the fucking analogy that is very crucial to their function henry it's like a sort of so imagine a bunch of hot dog sausages stuck into a big maize plant covered in clear white jelly and now you're getting somewhere right that that is what this plant does and in that jelly in that gel guess what guess what's in that gel henry guess guess why they need that gel it's sperm. What? Um, oh no! That was a that was a, a wet dick joke. Um, <laughs> what's in the gel? It's bacteria. Is what's in the gel, isn't it? Yes, it's bacteria. So they have nitrogen-fixing bacteria living inside this aerial root gel. Uh, for example, I think they're called Azospirulum. That's one of them. Um, what is that? What is the Azarcus? I think. Oh, that's a good um, one. All sorts of uh, all sorts of bacteria, um, as a, anything from Actinobacter, that kind of stuff. Those will um, those will live inside this gel, and they'll form an association with these aerial roots, so they can pick up nitrogen directly from the air in this sort of mucus that surrounds these. I'm going to send you a picture of the big wet dicks, Henry. I'm googling them already. Are you? I, 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 you'd be surprised by how f- hard it is to find information about these. I'm just yeah, no, it's picture. there. You go. Maybe I turn safe search off. Oh Maybe. God, it's bad. Oh, they've got <laughs> so much gel on them. Yeah. Oh no, <laughs> that's like too much lube, guys. That, that's it. Really, is quite yeah, it's striking, really isn't it? Oh God, they are, and they've got like white tips. With it, it, it is, it is a, it's a penis. Yeah, that's. A, that's I'm not wrong-minded. It, it, it is object that. Like it's got the whole like foreskin edition as well. They are bright red, but yeah, they're they're Jeez. pretty incredible. Are they at the base of the plant? They're Where in the air. They? They're throughout the stem. Throughout the st- at different intervals along the stem. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
it and why why would we allow we 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 made this did we we domesticated this well it's incredible i mean one theory is that like because people have been farming them for so long and they 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 hadn't really discovered crop rotation because i mean a lot of places in mexico and south america literally they just farm maize like maize is everything they make all of their food out of maize so there's there's not much i mean crop rotation was discovered like uh, to various intervals in a lot of agricultural societies and it means that you switch one crop for another crop in different in the same plot of land and each one will fix different nutrients into the soil so you've got like a cycle and you don't deplete the soils but if you're just growing maize there just maize maize will just take up all the nutrients and you're never going to get any of it back so a lot of the times when you're not using fertilizers your traditional growing practices you deplete the soil too much maize has to find a way of living in these low nitrogen conditions which maize created through decided farming. to choose that not yeah cool maize. this is not maize's cool. way around dealing with our bad farming practices it's used to avoid it's a punishment they punished us they're like sorry yeah you did this look what you've done to me oh you're not going to give me soil well how about a hundred big wet dicks now what about now yeah (laughs) big wet dicks fertilize this Hmm? but i think it's incredible i mean you said it's better than walking plants i don't know i think it's much more interesting i mean to be honest only maids could evolve something this sick I mean, I, I'm not going to make. I haven't read any info about. Wait, so this, this happened. Is this the product of a genetic reshuffle then? Well, I mean, it's a rapid evolution in maize. I mean, I'm, I haven't read about this specifically, but yeah, probably. It probably is. It really a, pressed the reshuffle button and like <laughs> hit shuffle. Oh. Big wet dicks. Hell yeah. Yeah. All right. I don't know that so that then... that's my favorite fact today. I really like that. I know it's not so interesting to you, but as someone who's seen a lot of no, no, um, underground I roots. It. I mean, this contributes to 29 to 82% of all of the nitrogen this plant gets. Up to 82%? Yeah. Maybe we should all get... <laughs> you know, chicken's costing a bit too much at uni, so I just maybe... <laughs> maybe I'll just get a little bit of that gel, you know? Mm. Love it. And, and we hope that someone out there will decide to do more maze research. Yeah, as many have said, it is amazing. You know, really, what 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 this plant can do is uh, <laughs> amazing. It's amazing, really. Um, you could say it's, it's, am- uh, it's amazing. you could say it's amazing. Get mazed. <laughs> it's uh, it's amazeballs. Oh, that's an old one. I forgot about that one. These these are amazeballs. They haven't got balls yet, though. So balls sound anyway. delicious. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's maze for you. Yes, recording in progress. Nice. Am I doing my first fact? Um. Okay. Go. Go for it. If you, uh, I'm happy. Right, so uh, my fact. I'm going to start this with a lovely little story. Okay. Can I tell you this in like a Stephen Fry? <clears throat> Samuel Alexander Pickett. Can you please leave my middle name out of this? <laughs> Samuel John Pickett. Yeah, that's better. Are you going to edit out your me saying it the first time? We'll see. We'll see how I feel. Right. Sam Pickett yeah. had recently asked the girl he liked on a date. They were going to go to Pizza Hut later on if this Friday evening. Okay. This is not Sam this is true. Up to the Pizza Hut in his favorite white jumpsuit looking stylish as he always does right immediately wows the girl he's taking out for pizza 
Yep. Um, and they sit down in a booth at the back of the restaurant. A Pizza Hut. A Pizza Hut. Yeah. It's Pizza Express. A Pizza Express. Oh, Pizza shortly Express. After, oh, wow. Bougie. Shortly after they order their pizzas, Sam is met with a sudden urge to go to the toilet. Sounds about right. So he goes to the toilet because that date was going so well and he doesn't want to lose the chemistry they were having. He decides to use a urinal in order to avoid the uh, the long process of getting out of his jumpsuit. Wait, 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 slow down. Can you slow down? Slow down there. My story's catching up with me a bit here. Wait, so, um, so, wait, wait, wait. What is the jumpsuit? Surely I could just... How, how it's does a jumpsuit that... with a really small fly, but it takes forever to get it. So you can do a yeah. sit-down toilet. I'm still I'm peeing. It's a weirdly designed jumpsuit, but it has a fly for some reason. It has a fly. I can fly in my jumpsuit. It has a fly. So you can do urinals quickly, but you can't do the full-on toilet. Sam <laughs> needed so to use the urinal for plot reasons. <laughs> <laughs> so Sam goes to the urinal. Um, and he noted as he was going to the urinal that it was actually an original design based off Marcel Duchamp's Fontaine sculpture. Okay, wow. As you can tell, Sam in the story is a very intelligent, artistic man. In the story. Fictional Sam is very artistic. (laughs) Fictional Sam commented on Marcel Duchamp's (laughs) Fontaine sculpture. He knows his way around the urinal, fictional Sam. He thought, how beautiful that looks. I'm so glad urinals are designed this way. So he begins to (laughs) relieve himself when suddenly he is covered in a hellfire of, of splatter. (laughs) <laughs> his own he right. was uh, violently uh, reflected back at him by the surface of the urinal onto his white jumpsuit ruining oh, his date oh. in a matter of seconds oh Jesus that's so obviously Sam in this story is fine he'll just wash his hands and pretend he's got the water on it but um, uh, yeah Sam's, Sam's not gonna be it could have been avoided that. if the urinal had been designed better and was not in fact based off an art piece by Marcel Duchamp whoever he is right Sam I, I'm, I, is this the point where I can start asking questions no <laughs> okay okay that leads <laughs> us into stage one of this fact today Sam would you believe it it is now 2022, and some scientists have designed an anti-splash version of the urinal. Oh, that's... Oh, my God, it's about time. <laughs> an anti-splash. So, I mean, when I use so urinals, I, I understand that at least 50% of our audience will not know what I'm talking about. And given the fact that my audience is entirely made of Alana, 100% of the audience, ur- urinals... I, in my experience, they don't tend to splash much. I'm going to be honest. They mm. just sort of it, the stream hits the porcelain. Let's let's talk about it for a second. It's immediately entirely spread across and just runs down the back, and there's no collateral damage, as it were. How much? How much detail is too much detail here? Well, I think it's for just, science. I think we should go a hundred percent detail. And if in my later state I decide to cut it, then I will. It's cut. Yeah, yeah. So. How does one create an anti-splash urinal? I'm going to take you on a journey. Today's all about stories and journeys and urinals. Okay. So these group of scientists started their quest by using computational models to model how dogs pee. Mm -hmm. And you're thinking, why would they do that? 
Well, they had a theory that the splash, the splashness of a urinal, this is a term I've just made, the splashness, how much it splashes back on you, um, is entirely dependent upon the angle of incidence the urine drops hit the surface at. So if the surface is hitting the urine at a shallower angle, then they think you get less splashback, right? Yeah. And they noted using their computational models and after looking dogs in real life, um, that dogs pee against trees by lifting their hind leg at a specific angle. And they instinctively know this to achieve, uh, you know, this critical angle or, or smaller than this critical angle that means that they get less splashback on themselves and therefore maximize the amount of scent marking they can do. Do you think the dog minds too much about splashback? Don't argue. <laughs> so you know how when cats pee, they go and they like spray it everywhere. That's yeah. scent, that's scent marking. That maximizes scent marking. I don't see how. I mean, in my dog experience, my dog scent marking is appalling. If you're going for scent marking this whole time, I have some I have some serious pointers. Okay, well, I have no idea. Well, for some reason, these dogs do it at a minimum. They they do okay. it perfect. I mean, maybe it's just personal glider. hygiene. I'm happy to accept that the critical. Yeah, dogs have personal hygiene, Sam. That's cool. That's cool. And male dogs exclusively. Yeah, yeah. Um, If you thought that wasn't the only way of being able to find the perfect urinal design, um, you'd be right because they also had to do. uh, They invented a thing called the jet urinal, uh, which isn't a urinal that flies. Um, (laughs) It's a urinal that they fired coloured jets at, and they would put a epoxy mould of the urinal surface, the shape of a urinal, and they would fire uh, jets of uh, coloured liquid at it. And then they would note the amount of splashback you get. And I thought this was going to be really scientific, but when I was researching it, apparently the way they measured the amount of splashback was they would squirt the liquid and then they would wipe the surrounding area around the urinal and then weigh the wipe. What? And the wipes that weighed more had more splashback. That feels too scientific. Which like, it's true. No, it's, 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 it's not science. I mean, the wiping process, how can you be consistently wiping it every single time? You know what I mean? If you can wipe a hundred percent of the surface, I feel like you've—I don't know—you're right. That does seem a bit. That does seem a bit odd. It's—it just—it just feels like a—it doesn't feel like an efficient way of doing it. Anyway, so they—they they used this jet urinal to test all sorts of different shapes and and forms, um, including the original one that I mentioned earlier, which is a Marcel Duchamp's Fontaine sculpture. So is this—is um, this the? Uh, I want to clarify: is the Marcel Duchamp sculpture? Is that the classic sort of small bowl shape? That I'm used no, to. I'm actually, I'm actually going to check. You know, I think it. You know, I think it's it's time we found out who Marcel Duchamp was. Because I think the most interesting part of this fact so far is that the urinal design was based off of a sculpture by a guy called Marcel Henri Duchamp. Henri Robert Marcel Duchamp was a French painter, sculptor, and chess player. Wow, Ooh. a creative man. He's also a writer. Oh. His uh, his work is associated with Cubism, data, and conceptual art. Apparently, he's a really influential artist. Yeah, that's this, the main but, thing. Anyway, but if you Google him, the main thing that comes up is this urinal. I'm oh, it's up. called Fountain. It's not called Fontaine. It's called Fountain. Oh, wait, is oh. this the modern art guy who just put a urinal in a modern art gallery? Uh, It may be him, yeah. I've heard of that. I assume that was more modern. Actually, no, no, it was in 1917 that he created Fountain. I think he made that because of urinals. I don't think urinals were made because of that. 
Oh no, urinals were invented in 1866. I haven't yeah. been following my facts up. I'm, I'm pretty sure that this was a commentary on modern art because he just thought, like, wouldn't it be funny if I put a urinal in an art gallery and everyone would be like, that's not art. And then I'd be like, what if it is? And then they talk Dude, the about it. The first art. person who, who made a urinal patented it, what a... <laughs> bro, it's a cup. I like, wait, did you, did you think that they found this sculpture and people just thought, like, hang on a second. This no, I actually be, didn't think thing, about it. This thing would be I, I really great to pee into. <laughs> I just thought it was funny, man. <laughs> I'll be honest. I like the connection. Anyway, we're getting sidetracked connect- again. Right. The connection is interesting. I agree. Right. Combining all data, they found the angle of least splash was about 30 degrees. So that means okay. that the incident angle at which the urine hits the surface of the uh, urinal is 30 degrees. Now, what's interesting about this is that you've got people of men of varying heights right mm-hmm. peeing into the same receptacle Ooh. Uh, and that means that the urine leaves their member um at different heights and therefore you know a- approaches the urinal surface at different angles right right so you've got to curve the urinal in a way that if you take the average forwards velocity of urine as Ooh. it leaves the member and you know, account for the acceleration due to gravity as it arcs down towards the surface of the urinal, right? Mm-hmm. You want that final angle to be less than or equal to 30 degrees for all altitudes of, of, of member. I imagine, though, regardless of, as you put, altitude of member, surely the angle of member, which is controlled by the individual, <laughs> right? Is, I assume, is, I, I'd, I think they assumed is, angle of member angle. was constant. Really? Well, all these men just have like erections. <laughs> so that's just. I like... thought there was a valve that stopped that, son. <laughs> there is, but if you really believe in yourself, I think it's. I think it's possible. <laughs> it's early in the morning. You just got to stand well back. I don't think you can't <laughs> sue the urinal, the the new scientist jet urinal company. Actually, let me just get onto the name. Okay, this is the Wonder Wonder Urinal. They named it the Naughty Lou. Why is it naughty? Because there's no splashback. That's a great, like, great That's question. like the least naughty. The reason it's called the Naughty Lou is because it's named after the Nautilus shell of which a lot of the curves oh, fuck off. of the urinal fuck are off. based. That's, that's... Now, fuck if you look off. at the Naughty Lou, it's, <laughs> it, like the bottom of it genuinely curves around like like uh, a Wait, Nautilus it, shell. I swear Nautilus still... shell is also based off uh, the Fibonacci uh, series, isn't it? Well, a lot of shells that are, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, so... So is it spelled naughty? Yeah. How are you spelling naughty Lou? Because I, I N A U T I. Wait, okay, I've I've googled naughty Lou and there's pictures of lighting. Uh, it's just all lighting. Uh, and now I found boats. Oh no! Third search. Physicists have designed a urinal that drastically reduces splashback. This is not a big yeah, problem that I'd ever thought of. No, I mean, okay, if someone has designed this, there's got to be a demographic, right? Mm, I'm, it's yeah. It's not just yeah. one guy, right? This article, this article is the new scientist. That's a pretty big. It's a pretty big uh, science journal. Wow! Wait, so this this one produced fifty times less splashback than the uh, original design. Yeah, I think it definitely. Whether it reduces splashback or not, like for example, if I went into the slough with the intention of splashback. I could I could receive splashback, you know what I'm like it I feel like it's up you to You just me. wouldn't take your member out of your pants. Yeah, <laughs> maximum splashback. 
I would just <laughs> aim it directly up at my face. Maximum splashback. Yeah, you go right up to the urinal. <laughs> you put up next to someone. And you just... <laughs> I turn around and shoot it over at them. Then you, you sit down on the urinal and just pee on the floor. <laughs> right. Anyway, okay. So, supposed to drastically reduce cleaning costs, uh, um, increase sanitary conditions, um, and they also think that if they in- install these urinals on like planes and boats or what they call like unstable environments uh, for relieving yourself. <laughs> Um, unstable conditions, sorry, is what they said. Uh, unstable then... conditions. They are unstable, Sam. Have <laughs> yeah, you ever no. tried to go to the toilet on a boat or a plane? Yes, I have. It's unstable condition. I guess. Uh, you keep making this. I think this is really valid scientific research. I think on a boat, I would I would opt for a sit-down. But what if there was a naughty loo? Wouldn't that be great that you could just stand up and do it? Oh, whatever. How, how anyway, scientists know? designed okay. an, a, a loo based off computation of dogs peeing and, and nautilus shell shapes, and it, it, it 50 times less splashback. And I like the dog peeing. I like the dog peeing. Next time I see my dog peeing, I'm going to be thinking, that's 30 degrees, that. Yeah. Maybe you should measure the angle to confirm that. Anyway, whatever. A I good scientist. This, this fact is outstayed. It's welcome. You're going to oh. edit this really well into something really nice. Oh, you know it. It's a good fact. It's a good fact. So mine is rather amazing. So I want to talk to you, Henry, about space. Okay. Space. A yes, space. A space. Well, the space. T-H-E space. Space. If one is going to space, there are lots of things that space does to our body that we don't want it to do. Right? So we'll go to space and then the lack of gravity, the lack of oxygen, the lack of various things will all do things to us that yeah. we don't want to have. Presumably you've brought something with you to see. <laughs> yes, but even 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 I assu- made it. <laughs> even assuming, even assuming that you've brought all the necessary equipment, right? Yeah. Even if you're in the ISS, there's still a gravity issue. The gravity issue, I mean, we don't True. we don't notice how useful gravity is for keeping our body in check. But without gravity, Things get a lot harder. I mean, we're not designed to be without gravity. No, no point has evolution planned for this. So yeah. we don't really know what's going to happen. And there have been some rather interesting effects on the body that gravity's had on people. And what I'm going to focus on is on the eyes. Okay. Ooh, so I, I, I don't know it, but I've heard of this. This is, this is the less interesting part of my fact. This is the sort oh, of cool. setup, right? I'm about, yeah, yeah. I'm building your expectations. Only for me to subvert them later. See, we're gonna got a good narrative structure here. Um, but yeah, so so the eye is made up of a bunch of different things, right? You've got your lens at the front, you've got the whole choroid, you've got your vitreous humor, which is just this sort of liquid, jelly liquid that the, the eye is just mostly made of. And then at the back you've got your retina, which which records all the light. And that's the general deal. And under gravity, your vitreous humor can get sort of deformed and it can sort of change shape and your eyes can get really blurry over time. And these, this effect isn't so well understood. One thing that's understood that's quite interesting is that women report visual deformation. So they report effects on their vision a lot less than men do. So when men go up into space, they often report after a certain amount of time, they can't focus on things, they can't see very well. Women, on the other hand, they don't report this anywhere near as frequently. So there's a good chance that the first crew to Mars 
is going to be an all female crew just because of this effect. They've just the future of mankind was all men are just staying on Earth. <laughs> and women are the only lambs allowed to go to space. Yeah. I mean I mean they they're, they're all in need of sperm, frankly. I mean we can be the ones going to space. We need a bunch of wombs. They just need sperm. They need a jar and they're good. At the end of the day. A jar of sperm, yeah. We we are to them a jar of sperm, um, but something else that I'm going to talk about now is one other thing that happens to Uri, and I want to see if you can try and explain why this happens. This was the first thing that people noticed when they went into space. This has been this has been recorded on a bunch of different space missions. It's called LF light flashes, also known as astronaut's eye. Okay, right. And as people are going through orbit, as people are going, especially when they're traveling at high speeds. Often, right, often astronauts report bright flashes in their eyes. And these can be very, very variable. They can be blue, they can be sort of diamondy, they can be yellow, pale green, they can be red. Often they're like spots, they're streaks, blobs, comets. People report all sorts of different different shapes. But generally, generally they are already got an answer. Right, what is your answer? answer. Go for a few few different theories. Is it cosmic rays that are going into our retina? So it is cosmic rays. That's the main. That's what it is, basically. You gotta but, be, you gotta be impressed, you know. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. But the mechanism is a bit more complicated than that, and I think you'll really like it. So cosmic rays, for anyone that doesn't know, they're basically the types of radiation that are emitted from the sun and from loads of other bodies, and they fly mm-hmm. around everywhere all the time. And they're, they're, just, mm-hmm. My next fact has a lot on cosmic rays. So Ooh. all the explaining. If you do the explaining now, then I don't have to do it later. Versus, I could do the explaining later, and you don't have to do it now. Well, I'm already. I'm not going to do a big explaining. I'm just going to do a quick explaining. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. can choose which one goes before the other in the final cut. Exactly. Uh, you don't need to know much detail, but they're just sort of bodies of radiation emitted from stars, and they're one of the reasons we have the aurora borealis, for example. They go through. They interact with the atmosphere, and that's that creates the aurora borealis and the aurora australis. Also, um, they are. There's loads of cool things that are made of cosmic rays and when they go into our eye into our vitreous humor that's one of the causes for lf right but what do you mean by that sam like what do you mean like the cosmic ray goes into our eye it's not light we can't see it so how does it affect our retina well either it goes into our retina and stimulates it directly is in it literally like hits a receptor and causes an electrical signal and tricks our retina in for thinking something's happening or Possibly it goes into our optic nerve and it tricks our optic nerve into thinking it's being triggered or it goes directly into our visual cortex, into our brain, right? Into the back of our head. And then that tricks us into thinking we're seeing something. So if any of these places get affected with cosmic rays, it's possible that we could think we're seeing light. And this is called something, well, this effect where you see light when there isn't light has a weird name. It's called a phosphine. A phosphine? A phosphine. Fiend. Phosphine. Yeah, Phosphine. That is a weird name, because that's I, a name for something else. Yeah, exactly. I saw this. I saw it, it creates phosphines, and I was like, oh, so the chemical phosphine. I clicked on the Wikipedia, yeah. right? It's nothing to do with the phosphine. Phosphine is a phenomenon of seeing light without light entering the eye. Nothing to do with chemistry. Yeah, it's yeah. so weird. It doesn't, come from, it doesn't come from phosphorus or anything. Completely unrelated. So just get that out of your mind. A phosphine is different. And I, I, this is a bit of a cool rabbit hole, but when people have psychedelic drugs, often they cause hallucinations or they cause little bright spots or colors. These are phosphines. 
and one other thing called prisoner's cinema which is a very very interesting effect where people who are in darkness for prolonged amounts of time purport seeing light that could be something to do with that could be that's called a phosphine and that could be to do with sort of stimulation within the brain and prison like a situation where your brain's not being stimulated much at all so your brain kind of makes stuff up or at least the, the natural fluctuations in your brain signals become more prominent because there's no overriding visual uh, stimulation happening i mean a lot of the theories about why you get prisoner cinema yeah they're along those lines um but they have it explains quite a lot of cool things so for example in cave paintings a lot of the depictions are theorized to be depictions of of lights caused by prisoner cinema which is quite a cool thing yeah. um and also people who do a lot of meditation people who are in um for example solitary confinement for long periods of time they've they've all reported prisoner cinema so this is this is another example of phosphines and they can occur through mechanical stimulation you can do one right now rub your eyes and you'll get sort of bright spots of light that appear on your eyes occasionally right and this pressure, this mechanical pressure, stimulates well, certain retinal cells in your eye called retinal ganglion cells. And these can respond to pressure. So, for example, if... if That's get... what that is. Yeah, yeah. That's a phosphine. Nice. That's a mechanical phosphine. And these can be activated by light. And they can be... They, well, they're generally responsible for circadian rhythms, for example. They respond to high-energy wavelengths. They're responsible for a sort of a general awareness of light. But they can be stimulated mechanically, which is quite cool. And yeah, general this, awareness of light is going to be tied to circadian rhythms. Yeah, exactly. Electrical stimulation, that can also be it as well. Um, so, for example, like one of the theories is that this is what cosmic rays do. They cause ionization of some particles, which can electrically stimulate some of your cells in your nerves or some of the cells in your visual cortex. And one incredible thing which they've done with this, which I think is so smart. So right. in, in 1974... They, they did this experiment where they essentially used visual prosthesis to create literal spots of Braille in a blind person's visual field in order to allow them to because essentially... She can, she, can, she can read Braille because she's blind, right? Yeah, so yeah. she'll look at something. This machine will, I don't know, enter some sort of electrical information into the back of her brain that will cause spots of light to appear in her visual cortex, which she can then translate from Braille. It's interesting that because it implies that when blind people read braille they create an image of the arrangement of the dots in their head yeah i think they have to i mean you have to have a spatial awareness of them i, mean, I imagine it takes them getting used to but I'm, yeah, I, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure you could i mean it seems to work with her quite well um, although for some reason that didn't really that hasn't really taken off i mean this was in 1974 i haven't heard anything about this and i, I imagine it's quite hard like i mean you can sure you can show someone Braille, but you can't exactly use that to like look around. Really, you know, you need a machine that translates everything around you into Braille. That's just not going to work. So I yeah. guess I guess you can only take this so far. But I think it's quite cool in theory. And there are some mechanisms, as I talked about, the mechanism of mechanical stimulation, electrical stimulation. There was one theory which the ancient Greeks knew about, and they theorized that it was to do with literal light being generated inside the eye, which obviously isn't how it works, right? Right. Right. Clearly, that doesn't make any sense. It's not like you're generating light inside your eye, right? Maybe you are. Maybe you are, Henry. I'm, th- I'm just, just thinking. That's why I'm pausing. The leading theory, I, I would say the leading theory for LFs is actually not phosphines. It's actually not the direct simulation of your visual cortex or your neurons okay. or your retina or your... None of that. It's not actually the leading theory. Probably it causes some of the LFs, but most of the LFs are caused by another process. 
Do you know what this process is, Henry? What is okay? Wait, wait. So only the astronaut who's got the the flash in their eyes, astronaut eye, they are the only ones who see this light. Yes. Is it just because the cosmic ray actually hits them in the eye and then it generates photons in the eye? Is it? I mean, you're waving your hands in the right direction, but there's a specific effect that that, that you know about. I know you know about it. You've told me about it before, and it's okay. what's happening here. It's what's happening here. Um, wait. So you're saying photons are being made inside the eye? Yes, that's what are, I'm getting. Light is, is being made in the eye. There is photonic emission in the eye. I mean, there's always a little bit, but this effect allows there to be a lot more photonic emission in the eye, enough that it becomes noticeable by the retina, and that causes. Is a it? Flash and it's of like light. a flash. Is it? Is it it's a flash of light? Yep. It's a flash in a. Is it a flash in a fluid? So. Yes, it is. Is that in any way related to the <laughs> mechanism? Yes, it, that, yes. Come on, Henry. Is it's it like, photo? What's it called? Uh, shit. It's something. Uh, uh, something luminescence. Uh, 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 it's, not um, sono, it's not sonoluminescence. Don't worry. Uh, it's not sonoluminescence. Uh, light in a fluid. Right. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna come out. No, I'm close. Shall I start? I, a, shall I start my explanation and see if you can start your explanation, up? and then I'll call it out when I can. Okay. So let's start this explanation. I'm going to start somewhere else. I'm going to start with. With the Concorde. I'm going to start with planes. Right. Okay. So when no, Cherenkov. Yes! No. Cherenkov! Cherenkov! It's no. Cherenkov radiation in your eye. That's it. That's insane. Yeah. That's, that's got to be deadly, though. It's, no. it's a tiny, tiny bit. It's not enough to be deadly. It's enough to be noticed. Mad. That's mad. That's so cool. Right, I'm continuing my explanation now. So, Concorde's planes go really fast, right? When something goes really, really, really fast, the air in front of the plane gets really pushed, gets really bunched up, right? I mean, something's going so fast that the air gets bunched up and bunched up and bunched up, and eventually, the air particles are so squashed together, right? They reach a certain point where they create this this thing called like a sort of cone of pressure, which explodes in something called a sonic boom. That's what happens, and that happens in loads of things. That happens when you crack a whip. That's a sonic boom. Loads of things are sonic booms. And it's when you break the so-called sound barrier, which means that the plane in question, or the whip, or whatever, what have you, is moving faster than the speed of sound in that medium. So let's say it moves faster than the speed of sound in air. The sound waves literally don't have time to get away from the plane. The plane is chasing the sound waves faster than they can be radiated outwards, and therefore you get this huge build-up of pressure. Now, what about what about a light boom, right? You can have something traveling faster than the speed of sound, but clearly you can't have something traveling faster than the speed of light. So there's no such thing as a light boom, obviously. Well, a lot of you might know that even though theoretically the speed of sound, the speed of light rather, yeah, the is the fastest light, yeah. speed possible, right? The constancy, you can't get faster than that. Well, yes, you can, because in most mediums, the speed of light isn't actually C. And that is because in mediums, so in like even air and water, light travels at a different speed into other mediums. Like most of you probably already know this. This is this explains refraction. This explains all sorts of phenomena. So that does mean well. What if you were moving through a medium, and you managed to get faster than the speed of light in that medium, right? You wouldn't have to travel faster than c. You just have to travel faster than c over some number. This this causes a bit of a loophole, right? You have to travel faster than the slow version of light, and that's possible. That's what Cherenkov radiation is. So Cherenkov radiation is when you have a particle and it travels so quickly and as something with an electrical charge moves through an electrical field, these sort of rings propagate out from the particle 
these sort of ripples of disturbances in the field. And as it moves, these disturbances are, what they are is actually just these particles around the charged particle. They get excited for a split second, which means they sort of raise an energy level. And then as the wave moves past them, as it moves through them, they get unexcited again, like a sort of Mexican wave of excitation as it goes out from the central particle. And when it gets unexcited, these can emit photons, right? But generally, there's so few photons that they're not an appreciable amount. You know, you can't actually detect them. And if you travel fast enough, if you travel faster than these rings can propagate outwards, they do the same thing that sound waves do, right? These rings in the electrical field, they bunch up, kind of like a Doppler effect type thing. Suddenly, once a particle gets excited, it doesn't have time to regain its normal state before it gets excited again. There's another wave. It doesn't have time for the wave to move through it. So it ends up having constructive interference with the waves. So instead of emitting one photon, you emit huge amounts of photons because all the waves sort of combine and occasionally a particle will give you way more photons than usually would. And then you get a flash of light because you've got what is essentially the equivalent of a, a photic boom, like a light boom version of a sonic boom, which is incredible. This is why, you know, why like in films, for example, when you've got like some radiation, it's glowing green or blue or whatever, right? That's because of Cherenkov radiation. That's one of the theories, probably the leading theory for why you get like LFs, light flashes in astronaut eyes. That is super incredibly cool. Yeah, cool fact. Okay, let's start with something fun rather than my actual fact, because that's nice. Sam, there's a particle called the Oh My God particle. Yep. OMG particle. And it's the highest ever recorded energy cosmic ray ever observed. And it had roughly a hundred quintillion times the energy of the average green visible light photon. So that's 10 to the 20 times the energy in a single particle, right? Okay. In a single particle, roughly mass wise, we don't know what the actual particle was because when it hits the atmosphere, it immediately starts doing all these amazing particle physics things. So it's hard to tell what it originally was, right? Right. But we know that that original particle, okay, 90% of cosmic rays are protons, about 8% to 9% are alpha particles, so helium nuclei, about 1% are electrons, um, and 1% are other nuclei. Okay. Um, And when they hit the atmosphere, they often degenerate into other wonderful particles like muons, which I'll get into in a second. Anyway, so this one single, oh my God, particle hit the atmosphere inside this one particle. And it think about it, it's roughly the mass 10 to the minus 27 kilograms. That's the order of mass we're working at. And it has the equivalent energy of a baseball moving at 63 miles an hour. What? So it's moving... Point nine 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 incredibly close to the speed of light, right? And it's moving in fact so close to the speed of light that if you started it in a race along a straight line with a photon, it would take two hundred and fifteen thousand years of this race running for the photon to get a one centimeter lead on this particle. Fucking hell. Yeah. That's incredible. And it just happened to hit Earth in Utah. I mean, it is, you are going at the speed of light effect- effectively, right? Like, yeah, I mean, no... 215,000 years for a one centimeter discrepancy. Yeah, you're going at the speed of light. Yeah. Anyway, that's called the Oh My God particle. That's, I mean, you, you can see the name now. Who names it the Oh My it, God it's about, particle? It's, it's like 60, it's about 60 million times the highest energy collision we've done in CERN or something. 
<laughs> just in a single particle, just casually. Uh, so how do you get these really high-energy particles formed in coronal mass ejections from the sun? So the sun is essentially flinging off matter really fast, right? Mm. And you're getting these protons flying off the sun, right? Uh, what they are is, okay, the technical term is explosive magnetic reconnections. Ooh. So what you have on the sun is you have multiple magnetic arcs due to swirling plasma, right? Yeah. So you see those videos where they've got the sun and they've got those big, essentially, arches, coming out of the sun of magnetic field lines. Oh, yeah, yeah. And due to the way they move, you often end up with the arches pinching at the bottom. Mm -hmm. And when you pinch at the bottom, if you imagine the direction of the magnetic field lines in that local area, if you just look at the bottom of them, you you essentially end up with two anti-parallel field lines getting pushed together. Right. So you've got these anti-parallel field lines being close and close together, and they can't exist in the same, like you can't have a magnetic field line going up and down in the same place, right? Yeah. So what you end up with is a conformational change in the magnetic field in that local area. And they get so close together that they flip from being two anti-parallel magnetic field lines into two opposite direction U-turns. So it's like it gets cut in the middle and then the two severed ends on both sides connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So you get a conformational change in the magnetic field lines resulting in a really high speed reaction where it's like an elastic band it pings inwards and because it's a magnetic field line and it's the sun a lot of plasma gets pulled with it and and with that charged particles like protons electrons alpha particles uh other heavy nuclei although in very small percentages you know carbon or whatnot um and they get flung into two different directions because you've got one u-turn going up and one u-turn going down so one u-turn flings it back down into the sun so half the stuff goes back down into the sun the other u-turn flings it off into space wow so essentially magnetic field lines get squeezed together they change their shape and they, they ping away from each other and is that, is that happening the all the time out of space. all the time mm, yeah all the time i think different places on the sun have different uh obviously different uh amounts of activity i think I can't remember whether it's north or south. One of the hemispheres, you can end up with like three or four times a day. And another one, you can end up with a time where it's like once a day. Uh, They take about, I think it's like two, three days to get here. Obviously that varies on the speed of the particles. Yeah. But uh, you get, you get, you're getting a rough idea for the time frames we're working on. Okay. Um, So when these field lines relax, they accelerate these particles towards the earth. Um, what I'm talking about is cosmic ray showers. So you've got this particle, this proton, traveling at a million miles an hour towards the Earth, hits our atmosphere, immediately smashes into some nitrogen, probably. Um, right. And that nitrogen gets, whoa, kinetic energy, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> All sorts of wonderful particle physics happens, and the nitrogen uh, ionizes itself, creates a little flash, you get like photon, you get electron, might smash open, you get a kaon, which is a strange well, uh, uh, meson. meson, you get pions, you get uh, uh, pions. muons, you get all sorts of great stuff. So you can get muons. Um, and what's great about these is they're always happening. So you get in all these wonderful, strange particles showering down at us all the time and it's like a statistical analysis you can do where you can say this is the average amount we're going to get at this place in time right um i mentioned that this particle only really degenerates into these other particles and does these wonderful particle interactions where you know all sorts of particles are produced 
because it's got so much kinetic energy, this kinetic energy can be turned into mass. So you're actually making particles as well as smashing particles out of place, right? Uh-huh. So you end up with one particle going into, you know, hundreds of particles, which is why it's called a shower. So there's a thing called muography, which is what I'm I'm talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, muon is the heavier cousin of the electron. It's about 200 times the mass of an electron, 209 times. Um, and we're using it essentially as a giant X-ray for big things that we can't see inside. Okay. So there's this big hole in the Great Pyramid of Giza called, well, they called it the void right now. <laughs> but there's some big room that no one's found yet. And they found it because they took a scan of uh, the Great Pyramid of Giza using uh, muon detectors, called, which is nuclear emulsion film. Uh, I'll explain what that is in a second. And they found that the number of muons coming from different parts of the pyramid varied based off the density of those different parts of the pyramid. If you think of a muon coming from space or the stratosphere where it's formed, as it travels down, um, the chance of it degenerating or decaying or smashing apart or smashing into another particle varies with the density of the particles it's passing through. If it's passing through more particles, it's more likely to decay or smash into something, right? Yeah. If it's passing through less, it's less likely. So they found that it is a higher muon count coming from a different place is likely less dense than a place with a lower muon count. So they took all these readings off the pyramid. You can do this over a really long period of time. I think every minute your thumbnail is is penetrated by one muon. That gives you an idea of the, yeah, one muon goes through your thumbnail every minute. So they're taking these readings over the course of a day and then obviously it'll average out and then you can actually get some good readable data on, 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 on the density of different parts of the pyramid. And if they look at the data, they can see that the expected places like the King's chamber or, you know, the, the entry hall or the passages, right. Yeah. Have higher muon counts because it's less dense because it's filled with air instead of stone. Right. Yeah. But then there was this weird place next to the King's chamber that also had a higher muon count and no one had ever seen that before. So there's now this this room that we haven't been inside yet, but we know exists. This is in 2017. They found this using muography. Other things they use muography for, they use muography for looking inside tropical storms because of varying air pressures throughout a tropical storm. So you can map a tropical storm from a distance using uh, muon detectors. Uh, you can look inside volcanoes. That's useful because you can look at the density of the different rocks inside the volcanoes. So they found that, I can't remember if it was I can't remember if it was Vesuvius. It might have been Vesuvius next to Pompeii. Mm-hmm. They mapped the denser rock that's acting like a plug around the top of the the magma chamber. Yeah. In terms of so murography, are they are they detecting muons that have come from cosmic rays as it passes yes. through something? Right. Okay. Cool. No, they're they're detecting. No. Okay. So they're detecting muons. Are they shooting the, the muons, muons are formed out? by cosmic rays? So are they? Do they like shoot muons through the pyramid of Giza, and then someone stands on the other side of the pyramid of Giza and detects the muons to see how far? Okay, how... so they went into for this specific case, they went inside the Queen's chamber, which I think is a central part of the pyramid of Giza, or you know, but they can map it. You know, using science, they can calculate angles. Um, they put it in. The, they put these things called nuclear emulsion films, which is actually a gelatin emulsion with silver halides in it. So it's got silver halide salt in it. And as a muon passes through it, it 
dissociates the silver from the halide, producing silver methyl. Okay. So what you end up with is traces of silver. So you've got lines. And it's good because it created a 3D image instead of a 2D image. So you can see the direction of which the muon came in. So they stand inside a room and detect muons that come from outside. Yeah, so the images I saw were large meter by one meter gelatin emulsions of silver halide sitting on the floor. Run that for a couple of days. Right. Then look at what you've got. Oh, look, all these ones are coming from this side at this angle. All these ones are coming from this side at this angle. Obviously, you do your data analysis later and produce a nice graph that shows you there's a void in this part of the pyramid that you didn't expect it to be. Okay, okay. So they're not shooting muons at anything. They're just seeing no, how muons... they're receiving muons. muons. Yeah, one yeah, of the cool right, parts about sense. this is it's, That's cool. it's, a, it's a resourceful mm. uh, way of measuring stuff because it, it's constant. It's coming from space. Uh, for, the, for the for the volcanoes, if you're interested, they put it on they put it on one side of the volcano, and they were measuring muons coming from the volcano. So future uses of this, right, right, geography in future could be used to check nuclear waste and dangerous contraband in customs at airports. Ooh, uh, because you don't have to open the container in order to access it, and muon counts obviously vary drastically with the density of the material. I.e., if you put something like uranium you're going to have barely any muons coming through. Oh, I so, see. So that's a that's a uh, a useful use for for muography. So magnetic reconnections, fling particles at us. That these particles then decay in our atmosphere, and then we can measure varying particle counts through objects to determine what the object's made of. Yes, yes, that's cool. I'm going to give you a very quick fact, Henry. This is nothing to do with science. This fact, I think this fact is best said first before explanation. And that is that the Declaration of Independence has nine... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, we're way off the chart. This is, this is, this is really... Really nothing to do, nothing to do with anything that any of us are interested in. I mean, some would say, in fact, not good for this podcast. (laughs) So I want to go back to the good old days, back to the days when Beatles banking episode. in a room is considered a, a appropriate fact for this podcast. You know, those are the days. Beans are in fact not. <laughs> I thought we'd grown. Yeah, no, no, we definitely grown. This is a very like mature and important fact. Like this is there's nothing. So I mean, this is quite dry, but the Declaration of Independence has a uh, has nine dog bollocks on it. Sam, so what's going on? It has nine dog bollocks on it. The Declaration has nine dog bollocks on it, Henry. Yeah, but it's a piece of paper, Sam. It always has. they roll off, no? And it always will have nine dog bollocks. No, oh no, nine pairs of dog bollocks. So that that would mean 18 18 individual. Wow, this is where it gets a little little messy because, um, well, the dog's bollocks, I'm going to come clean with you. I'm not actually talking about dog's bollocks. Oh, a dog's bollocks is a extinct punctuation mark. <laughs> made that up, fact just got so much less cool. Made up of... In the space of one sentence. It's an extinct... It lost maybe 80% of its coolness. <laughs> an extinct punctuation mark made up of a colon and a dash. Thus looking like a dog. And may I just say, just bollocks in general. It it's looks like bollocks. 
It looks I like a, yeah. a midget. It's, it is a penis emoji, isn't it? No, it's a, it's a cock and balls emoji. And it used to be a well-known punctuation typographical mark. Call the dogs bollocks. No, they, they were officially called the dogs bollocks. That was their name. Their official name. In dictionaries. What, did it, what does it mean, though? Well, so there was actually a, a bunch of different um, punctuation marks called compound points. And this is just like, so like you had a full stop and a dash. And then you had like a comma and then a dash. And you had a semicolon and then a dash. And they all, they all mean different things. So the, the comma and the dash, that's sort of used to like, honestly, the reason these have gone is because they didn't really make much. I mean, they kind of just meant the same thing. Like it means a very similar thing to a comma. You know, it kind of marks like where a comma would be placed, but also where you want to put a hyphen. So like in the sentence, I mean, all of the equivalent sentences are really old and weird, but, um, I should like to undertake. The stony shire side of that estate, comma dash, it's in a dismal condition, comma dash, and set improvements on foot. So I think it's used kind of like a bracket, from what I can gather. Then you have the nice. semicolon dash. Semicolon dash is like testicular cancer, dogs bollocks. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a, 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 you should probably see a doctor, dogs bollocks. Is one that's kind of like a bracket, but for emphasis. You know, it's like brackets are like here's a little side note. Might be interesting. It's like imagine, imagine you've got brackets, but the brackets are the star of the show. You know, like in, like what, for example, like, in the Rolling the, Stones song, "I Can't just... Get No Satisfaction." I can't get no the bit you care about in that song, really, as opposed to right. satisfaction. So they should have used a semicolon dash, I think. Okay. Colon yeah. dash, which is what I'm talking about, and this is referred to as a dog's bollocks, known for its phallic appearance. This has a unique place among the compound points. It functions as a sort of... I really like this, actually. It's sort of a restful pause. It's sort of like... It's like a so it's like a comma. But a, if you use a comma, you know, it kind of suggests there's something coming. You know, it's like you can take a breath, but get ready because another clause is about to hit you right in the face. So don't get too yeah. comfortable. That's like what yeah. commas use. You know, you're going to put a comma there... You can't, you can't let your guard down. You, you were going to get hit with a butt or a however immediately after. So it's a way to prepare yourself for another bit of sentence, right? And then you got the full stop, which is the other extreme. Sentence is done. You could be the end of the paragraph, could be the end of the book. I'm not going to give you any information about what's coming. That's so it's, it's almost scary in a different respect. Colon dash is sort of nice, occupies a nice sort of liminal space between the two. It's sort of like a restful pause, you know. It, it can be used for lists or quoted extracts, but in the Declaration of Independence, it was often used to just be like, the thought is done. There might be something coming. There might not be something coming. Just just, just chill for a bit. Chill and look at this little this cock and balls for a few seconds. Yeah. And now you can move on to learning about how all men should be free or whatever. You know, it's a... I, I mean... I'm gonna be honest. It does. It means the same thing as a comma or a hyphen or a, or a, a, punctuation is stupid, but it's it's it used to be quite a culturally used thing, especially in legal documents. It was its earliest use was around 1600s in an edition of Othello. However, like it later on, you got like the rises and falls in popularity, and after the 1950s, it was kind of you know, used less. And in 1970, it was kind of like the next edition of the dictionary will not have this one in. I'm going to be honest. 
and then it stopped being used. Yeah, someone said in the 1953 edition of the British English Dictionary, um, someone called Eric Partridge said that you should only use compound points when they are unavoidable. So, I mean, I can't imagine it possibly being unavoidable, but only if it's completely unavoidable should you use a small drawing of a dog's bollocks yeah. in your in your in your text. I think that's true of most phallic drawings in your in your text. No, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure. I agree with that. You know, I think embrace it generally. I'm I'm quite sad to see the colon dash go. I'm quite. I sad. would have hated to have learned about it. Really? No, I mean I couldn't really understand the, the colon to be honest. Oh my god, buddy, buddy! I am so on top of the colon. I, 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 mean, I can I, use colons. I just, I just, you know, if someone told me you've used that wrong, I'd be like, oh yeah, sorry. I wouldn't argue, you know. Sure. <laughs> I would take. I would argue to the death. I, I'm like on a sort of one semicolon per paragraph type type quota here. Full stops at this point. Full stops. Full, full stops. stops full stops. Yeah, what is this? A telegram? Straightforward. It's my brother died in the war. Come on, Henry. Get, have a heart. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Start using so many full stops. Full uh, well, stops should be using that. On I a got a very good on my comprehension in my lab report. So I yeah. say, I say, you should make sentences as long as possible. <laughs> if, they're, <laughs> if they're breathing, they're not understanding. Things I used to do that, and it just went badly for me. I'm not sure this is super interesting to listen to, though. Yeah, well, I'll be the judge of that. Welcome <laughs> back to punctuation pause. Today you've finished learning about punctuation. It was so good at the start, and then I think it was worth. I think that 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 initial surprise at the entire foundation of the global superpower being built on a document containing nine plus drawings of dog penises, I think is an interesting. Is an interesting, interesting thing to think about. I don't know. I don't know. It's not hurting anyone. My other fact, I frankly didn't want to waste on this podcast, which I think is already bloated with interesting facts. So I thought I'd just knock this one out, you know. Are you done for the day? I'm done. Well, I've given you three facts, buddy. I don't know what you want from me. I can give you another one if you want. Give me another one, but just... <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you're being greedy now. Come on, we've got a two-hour podcast <laughs> under our belt already. Are you done? No, you I've got... Got, yeah, I've got, I've got testing. Uh, I'm not going to say it, but I have one. You nearly oh, yeah. said it. You nearly I've got said a long it. one. Right, okay. Testing. We can do our last fact. Is that cool? Sam, I'm from... Can I say I'm from Scotland? I can say I'm from Scotland. Can yeah, I? I, qual- I think you qualify. Uh, I qualify to everyone who is not Scottish. Which is me. If you're, if you're Scottish, you think I'm not Scottish, which is... So if you're not Scottish, I'm I'm Scottish, and if you if you are Scottish, I I know, <laughs> I know I'm not. <laughs> right, Sam? Would you believe it? Scotch whiskey exports in 2021 were valued at four and a half billion pounds. I would. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Is that a fact? Okay, so I'm talking about whiskey. <laughs> <It's> my... <laughs> no, my fact is about whiskey. Okay, because. I personally I haven't drunk much whiskey in my time. You know, I expect that to change as I become an old wizened man who has, uh, you know, interesting alcoholic problems and office. stuff like that. Yeah, and like, you know, and alcohol. I don't know, like you know, old cool people drink whiskey. 
or alcoholics drink whiskey in whatever. bars detectives um, that kind of thing whiskey you would think the quality of whiskey is a qualitative thing right hence quality of whiskey right it's the same with like wine or vodka or chocolate or blankets or cars or like you, there's there's no number that says this is the good wine you know this is the I good see. yes but 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 there is a little degree of objectivity to whiskey because matureness of whiskey is kind of a number or matureness of wine sometimes is kind of a number that says oh it's really mature and expensive that means it must be good to be honest if you don't like older wine <laughs> that kind of screws that whole thing over but definitely definitely people talk about the maturity of these spirits like yes, whiskey yes um as as a quality that defines it right so if there was a way of getting a value in a quick in situ test for whiskey that you could just add some stuff and boom nice that's a that's a whiskey that's matured and because maturity they said they they they're assuming that over that maturity period it has been maturing well, you know, mm-hmm. because whiskey is good when it, because they're generally stored in uh, oak casks, right? Casks made of oak wood. Uh, I think they're called congeners. I don't know. I don't know the pronunciation of congeners. C-O-N-G-Congeners. Congeners. Congeners. We're going to call them congeners. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> okay. So the congeners that come from the whiskey, it's basically just uh, these organic compounds that they come from the oak and they go into the whiskey and they add the flavor and the richness and the maturity that every great whiskey drinker uh, will know their whiskey is good for, you know, because mm, can you taste that wood in my whiskey? Um, and that's great. But how do you know that if you say it's 10 years, right? But maybe you've got some less porous oak that's not really putting many chemicals in, even though you've been putting it in that oak for 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. As opposed to whiskey that's three years old that's been sitting in a different kind of oak that's really given off those congeners. So scientists have found an unconventional method of measuring the quality of whiskey by adding gold salts into the whiskey. And (gasps) it's a test for spirit agedness, right? But really, it's a test of how much congeners are in it, right? And what happens, essentially, in a nutshell, is that these gold salts are reduced by the whiskey congeners into gold, pure gold. Obviously, it's a really small amount of gold, right? But it's reduced into small gold. So you can take a little bit of this whiskey, put it in a tiny little test tube, add some gold salt to it, and the congeners reduce this gold salt by removing this halide ion, probably, Mm -hmm. um, and just leave gold. And what happens, actually, because of the way these nucleation sites work inside the whiskey congener gold halide mix, right, mm-hmm. is that you end up with nanoparticles of gold being formed. Ooh. I'm about to get real science It's getting more. It was slipping down that slope of science, Sam. Hit a little it's bit right of back up. It's right back up. All right, here it's we like go. Alchemy. Introducing introducing colloidal gold plasmonic things. Oh. Oh. There's a thing called a plasmonic nanoparticle, Sam. Yes, yes, I know what this is. This is sexy. Sam knows what it is. Sam, what do you what do you what do you think it is? Is this to do with plasmon resonance, Henry? It is, yeah. This is what I think it is. It, this is, might be wrong. Well, metallic bonding involves a sea of delocalized electrons, and that essentially means that you have a bunch of charged particles surrounding this sort of small blob of of positive ions. And if you get an electric field passing across that, then this sort of this sort of general fuzz of electrons can oscillate back and forth in time to this 
to this electric field and thereby amplify or, or, or interact with other things and it can therefore create color and stuff like that. Is that vaguely right? Yeah, it's vaguely right. So what you described there was plasmonic surface resonance. Yes. Um, the Obviously, in this case, the oscillating electric field that Sam's describing is uh, light. It's an electromagnetic yes, yes, wave. Yes. So you've got the oscillating electric component of that. So what you have is light that's incident on the metal surface, oscillates these surface electrons, um, and they interact with the light. I'll leave it at that. So what we see is that the shape of the nanoparticle, because they're on such a small scale, means that instead of having just a 1D or 2D, just the surface of the, the, the metal is resonating with the light, you can sort of get the geometry of the actual nanoparticle means that the electrons are shifting around the nanoparticle as a whole. Mm-hmm. So what happens is it forms a dipole momentarily. Mm-hmm. So you're getting this instantaneous dipoles, kind of like Van der Waals, to be honest, but it's Van der Waals that are being in- induced on a micro lattice, let's say, of gold ions. So you've got a couple hundred gold ions, right? Mm-hmm in a ball and this dipole then creates its own electric oscillating electric field because it's oscillating itself um it, it creates its own electric field that negates the effects of part of the electric field that the light is putting over it right mm-hmm. but i'm just going to say it, it's absorbing a specific frequency of light and the geometry of this uh particle or the size of this particle or the topography of this particle affects the um exact resonant frequency at which these electrons oscillate varying the shape or the size of this nanoparticle affects what frequency of light it absorbs yes so it affects, you can yeah. have nanoparticles yeah. that are in sausage shapes where Ooh. instead of being a ball they're in a sausage shape and that shape affects the color of the light that's absorbed assuming it's spherical these nanoparticles Red solutions containing, and it's just straight gold, it's just straight gold nanoparticles, but if they're 20 nanometers in diameter, these nanoparticles, uh, the solution's red. If they're 80 nanometers in diameter, the solution's orange. And you can get varying diameters, I don't know the exact sizes of the nanoparticles, but it, it, can, be, it can be blue, it can be violet, it can be yellow. <gasps> so, what, so what the scientists have done is they've added specific concentrations of these gold salts to the whiskey, the congeners, the woody molecules that go into the whiskey, reacted with the gold salt to produce gold nanoparticles, and that colours the solution as a whole because of the way that the uh, colloidal gold suspension, suspension of nanoparticles, uh, plasmonically reacts with the light that's incident on it. So you end up with this coloured solution, and then they use colorimetry to measure oh my the specific God. frequency of light that comes off it. So you can get this reaction producing a coloured solution in basically a couple minutes. You add the gold salt, a couple minutes later, it's orange, right? Mm -hmm. And you can measure the concentration of congeners in your solution uh, relative to the amount of gold you added and whatnot. And you can see the size of these nanoparticles because they start forming nucleation sites once they start growing. So if more gold forms, it forms on the nanoparticle. So instead of having more nanoparticles, you have the same number roughly, but larger. That makes right. sense? Yes, yeah. So it means that, boom, how how old is my whiskey? Well, let me just add some gold salt. Wow, it's gone orange. That must mean that you've got 18 nanometer in diameter gold nanoparticles in that. And for the amount of gold that I added, that means that you must have a pretty high concentration of congeners. 
Wow. Hence good good flavour. Hence good whiskey. Hence very orange, nice orange whiskey. And it's cheap. It's cheap. So you just take a little bit from someone's whiskey thing. And they did tests on Tesco's whiskey. Mm -hmm. And they were like, bro, the Tesco's whiskey, not many congeners, surprisingly. But hey, it's cheap. So, you know, people don't care. Every little helps. And that's it. Brilliant. And that same mechanism, plasmon, that's how stained glass is made. Yes. So they put gold nanoparticles inside, you know, glass. And you can you can have surface plasmonics. Plasmonics is really cool. It's essentially light is affected by the geometry of the nanoparticles. So mm-hmm. if you have a nano nanostructure, which is a structure of atoms, um, instead of it being electron excitations that define the light that's absorbed and re-emitted, hence the color of it, yeah, you can have the shape of it affect the color of it, and it can affect different wavelengths than you would otherwise be able to do for the electron bands that are available to you, which is really cool in and of itself. Um, when I was first researching it, I was like, wait, but how does the gold turn into a nanoparticle and also be ions of gold? Because it's the colored transition metal ions that are making this this color, right? Ah. Uh... No. I was I was so sidetracked with that, but it turns out it's a suspension of nanoparticles of gold that causes the light to bend and warp and dipole polarize this yep. nanoparticles into cool ways. It's such a good yeah. it's so cool. You probably have like four hours worth of stuff now. Or three hours. I have a good three hours. I have a good three hours. I'm gonna Can I just stop recording? Uh I can. Uh, yes. Should we do a little goodbye? Do you want to? You're listening to the Substandard Model.